Hello, and welcome to episode number 57 of Soft Spot, the podcast of the Global Soft Foundation. My name is Chelsea Hamishan, and I'm our Vice President of Marketing, Events, and of course, Podcasting. We have a lot going on at the Foundation, so I wanted to give you a brief glimpse at our activities before we kick off today's topic. First, next week, from October 26th to the 28th, we will be in Warsaw, Poland for our fifth European Symposium. Depending on how fast you listen to this, you might still have time to register. So head to gsofeurope.org right now to sign up if you haven't already. It's going to be świetne, which hopefully means awesome, and if not, my apologies. Next, we have had to postpone our November Modern Warfare Week in Fort Bragg to spring 2022 due to COVID restrictions from the DOD. That event is co-hosted by USASOC, and with the current regulations, we just aren't able to hold it until spring. So please tune to mww.gsoftsymposium.org for more info on that. We are, however, still holding a two-day software life transition seminar in Fort Bragg at that time from 17 to 18 November. So if you're transitioning from active duty anytime in the next two years, you'll want to be there. We also have networking huddles coming up, Fort Bragg on 18 November, Orlando on 29 November, and our annual holiday social on 7 December in Tampa. And last, but only last because it's relevant to this podcast, we are co-hosting our first virtual soft team room with the Military Special Operations Family Collaborative. Kaylee Lehman is on their board of directors, and she's heading the charge on that event and is going to lead today's podcast with Dr. Preston Klein, Dr. Chris Fruet, and CSM Retired Rick Lamb. Kaylee talks more about the event itself in the episode, so I'm just going to let her get right to it. And then if we want to break it down. Global South Foundation. My immediate reaction was, this is awesome. The Special Operations Community. You have our support. Let's move. Welcome to Soft Spot. I'm excited to be here today with you guys. Um, We're here because the Military Special Operations Family Collaborative and the Global Soft Foundation are hosting a team room talk on November 9th, discussing um, soft legacy beyond the battlefield with Lieutenant General Retired Mike Nagata and Command Sergeant Major Retired Bill Thetford. This is an important community conversation to start. It was before, but now following the pullout of Afghanistan, it's really become a critical conversation. Um, Our event on November 9th will be a virtual event, um, and it'll be an opportunity to discuss the meaning of soft service with others who've served. Um, Additionally, participating um, soft service members, veterans, and their families can attend breakout rooms with um, community leaders and gain access to soft-specific health performance and transition resources. So it's a unique opportunity to go to one spot and and get resources that you wouldn't typically find readily um, available in one spot. The three of you have, have a unique spot in this community. You came from totally different places, from actively serving to um, working on uh, education and performance. And Dr. Free, a clinical psychologist that started in the VA. Um, and you've really become uh, trusted uh, people throughout the community 
um, that are sought out for your advice. Um, you each have also had the courage to speak honestly and well about what you've seen and experienced while you've been um, in the soft community or serving in the soft community. It's no secret that the military and veteran communities have a problem with suicide and transitioning from service is a significant problem. Um, despite the incredible training and grit and expertise of our force, these challenges also impact our special operations community. This event isn't specifically about those. It is about um, health, performance, and wellness. Um, with that, I'd like to introduce the people that are here and spend a moment talking about your stories and how you wound up working with um, the soft community. Rick, you had an incredible career in special operations and served with the Ranger Regiment and several SF groups, and you're still a dedicated member to the profession and go above and beyond for the community and the legacies. Well, hey, thanks for that intro. But, you know, I, I kind of stumbled into it like everything else I've done. It, uh, it was, wasn't planned per se. And uh, I, mean, I was a command sergeant major. You know, I was a, a sergeant and sergeants take care of troops. I mean, that's what they do. So uh, as uh, it, this just seemed like a good fit to, uh, to join the Global Soft Foundation and, uh, and help Stu and the crew. I mean, it's a 501c3. It's a disabled veteran run. And uh, we, we, we started looking at how can we help soft? We're, we're, a, we're actually a national military association like the Association of the United States Army or the Navy League. So we are a, an advocate for soft. And then we, as we figured out the list of how can we be a better advocate for, you know, uh, SOCOM who's got global combat command-like authorities and, you know, the, uh, and service-like authorities, but had no advocate, you know, we, uh, we, we fell into that role. And one of the things was this soft for life transition. And uh, Stu and I had, I wouldn't say rough transitions, but we had probably a, a normal transition where you work right up until the very last day. And then you uh, you step out of the sheltered life. It's counterintuitive, but the military is a sheltered lifestyle. I mean, yeah. you live on post, you shop at the commissary, you, get, you got your own medical and health care. I mean, you're told where to be in what uniform. And it, it just, you, you just march to the drum beat. Probably the biggest thing that uh, woke us up is when uh, the suicides, people that we knew started killing themselves. Yeah. And how far were you in your transition when you started to notice that? Because I find you're transitioning about to transition or even after service before you really start to look around and kind of see the condition that your friends and, and buddies and people you served with are in. I mean, you're, you're always in transition. So uh, I, I think, you know, if Rick was in charge, then uh, the, the day you sign in and you go to see Big Sarge and he opens up the counseling folder then uh, one of the things that uh, he checks is transition. And there should be somebody in the formation that, uh, that, that is telling you, hey, these are the this is a thing called an investment. This is how much you should be putting away. I mean, the officers to a large degree get that already, but uh, you know, the enlisted, not so much. And uh, I mean, because really your entire career in soft, you were only one injury away from transition. And, uh, and that could happen tomorrow. It could happen next week. It could happen whenever. So, you know, guys, and gals want to do 30 years or 20 years or what have you, but it could end tomorrow. So you need to be thinking about transition all the time. But the transition is not so much from the military to civilian world, but you're always in transition. Because uh, we, we started looking at some of the suicides and we we're, we're, were trying to break them down and see why. Because we would talk to uh, the guys that we knew that put the, the facade, the face on, saying everything's fine. And then afterwards, you'd figure out, okay, everything wasn't fine. I mean, their their faith was battered. 
you know, their, their family, their friends, their fitness, and their finance. And those were kind of like the five, you know, pillars that we came up with, the resiliency factors that, because um, a lot of times the, you know, the faith will get shattered. And, uh, and there's two sides to that faith. There, there's the religious faith, you know, to where you think of there's a being that all of this is, uh, is, is by design. And you look out and I mean, the first time you see dead children, you, uh, you, you, you lose your faith in, in a larger than life being because these bad things happen, right? So religious faith shattered. But there's also a secular piece to that. And you see that uh, we like the stuff we're going through right now where, where every institution would appear to be corrupted or corrupting. And uh, the guys are looking at it saying, did I just waste 20 years of my life in something that I totally bought into? And now, you know, just in a whim, because we didn't want to spend the money, it's over. So, uh, so you've lost faith in this, you know, both the secular and religious side. Uh, a lot of, I, and, and again, I, I can't wait to hear Chris speak because the, the whole allostatic load, I mean, guys and gals knew it. Um, that there's just something not right. But, you know, when you're at the constant adrenaline, adrenaline rush, crash, rush, crash, rush, crash, and the cortisol levels and the, uh, the, the lack of sleep, I mean, and, and the low testosterone, that was, uh, that was a big thing. I mean, most, most of the guys think, you know, they're, they're, they're a beast, right? And then when they get their testosterone checked, the, uh, it's like, whoa, <laughs> what happened to that? What's the cortisol, you know, and the stress eating the testosterone? So when you, when you heal, it's the testosterone that is healing you, and that happens when you sleep. So if you're not sleeping and uh, you have low testosterone, then your body is just continually breaking down. So, uh, so that's the that's the uh, the fitness aspect of it. The problem with the family now is that uh, you've got a guy that's in constant pain, doesn't want to take the pain medication because he doesn't want to get hooked on it. He or she now, again, the allostatic load is is the fact that everybody's short circuited. So you're short. I mean, you're, if I can say it, on the, you're an asshole. And uh, to the point of where where a lot of the a lot of the soldiers when they're still in, I mean, you can't even take a uh, a family vacation without saying, all right. You can have your bags packed by this time. They're going to be at the front bar by this time. We're going to have them loaded in the vehicle by this time. We're going to hit the SP. We're going to, we're going to depart at this time. And we're going to make our first, uh, our first stop here and our second stop here. And, of course, none of that happens, especially if you have little kids. So, uh, so now you're badgering everybody to get the vehicle loaded up to get out, and you've already missed your departure time. And then the whole ride, you're looking, uh-oh, there's a big, large open area over there. Oh, there's some people congregating over there. Oh, there's a vehicle over there. Is he broke down or is there a bomb in it? I mean, so especially the if, if you're still in, I mean, you're you're going through all that stuff all the time. You can't even look at a golf course without uh, without looking at sectors of fire, fields of fire, and uh, likely ambush positions. That's burning your family out. So if you lose your faith, your fitness, and your family, yeah, that's probably affecting your finances because think of what type of employer you're going to be. And uh, so you're stuck with friends, and a lot of times you're not going to reach out to your friends. If your friends ask, you may tell them, but uh, but but you're you know you're not going to reach out to them and tell them that you're the weak link. And uh, so, so that's kind of where everybody's at right now. It doesn't make them damaged goods. It, it makes them damn good green berets and good Rangers. You know, when you, when you break glass and send them forward, but uh, just getting easing back into a normal life um, is challenging. Yeah, you're right on. And, you know, I find it's interesting. People want to think transition. Well, I'm not at the end. I don't want to have that conversation yet, but so much of the time, they're actually just basic leadership skills that if you go back to some of our, our uh, you know, we're teaching our youth now, but we neglect to teach it a lot of times to our, to our own force. And, um, and if, and if we just 
push some of those into the force a little bit earlier, I think it would even help prime some of the the conversations that are that are so essential. It's it's, it's not you know everybody's not broken across the board, but but there there's enough there's enough um, smoke there to you know we need to look at. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's fair to say there is a a general evenly spread cumulative high toll across across the force. Um, you brought up allostatic load, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pass to Dr. Free for a second. Uh, Chris, you started in the VA. Um, you've become a trusted counselor and friend to many, um, especially in the SEAL community, but in the broad broad soft community. Um, you authored the operator syndrome paper. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how you wound up there and kind of what brought you to write that paper? Yeah, sure. Um, so first of all, yeah, we wrote a paper called operator syndrome describing kind of our perspectives and what we've seen in the, uh, in the soft community, which, which is a very common pattern. And, and Rick already laid it all out there. So I almost can't don't have anything left to say about it. It's the, it's a, it's a constellation of interrelated injuries sustained in the course of, of war and training for war. Um, and I, and I always like to emphasize, although I'm a psychologist, what I and many others have been calling operator syndrome. And, and I don't know who came up with the phrase. It's just something I started using and other people had been, were using it. So um, it's almost like a folklore term at this point that, that I won't claim credit for. Um, but we've been, we've been seeing this pattern of interrelated difficulties, which, which I like to emphasize, even though I'm a psychologist, these are physiological injuries. Let's start with that. And yes, they can become down second, third order effects and involve psychological problems for many, but TBI, physiological injury of the brain, orthopedic injuries, physiological injuries of joints, back, um, other times, other kinds of, of combat or, or training injuries. So you've got chronic pain connected to physiological damage. Sleep apnea is very much physiological and the, the effects of sleep disruption, the effects on the endocrine system, the cortisol dysregulation that, that Rick talked about over the course of years and possibly even decades is, these are, we're talking about physiological injuries sustained um, in the course of a, of a soft career. And then there's the ripple effects, the second and third order effects on psychological functioning, cognitive functioning, family functioning. And I like the five Fs. I hadn't heard that before, but that's a, that's a great, uh, great model. And I love that it includes faith and faith can, as Rick said, can mean a lot of different things to different people. But I think collectively we're looking at a loss of faith uh, in many ways, um, given the recent events of recent months. So my own story, just, just, I'll just share it very quickly. So my father was a Vietnam veteran. He was a physician in the Air Force, so not a combatant. My great-grandfather was a veteran of the Spanish-American War, and I knew him as a, as a child. He had been on the other side of, of Kettle and San Juan Hills when uh, Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders were running up the other side of the hills. Um, so when I went to graduate school, my, you know, I really wanted to work with veterans and service members. That was, that was my goal. 30 years ago when I got out of graduate school, and it continues to be uh, one of my one of my missions in life, I guess is probably the best way to put it. I was in VA for 15 years, full-time clinician for half of those years, part-time clinician for the for the last eight of those years. 
also doing research. So I've had the grants, done the research papers, I've done the clinical work. And about a, almost a decade ago, not quite, I was talking with some friends in, in, uh, in Houston. And one of them was a former Navy SEAL. He had just separated uh, about a year prior. And we got to talking and I thought, oh, I'm a PTSD expert. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be able to help this gentleman, help my friend understand some things and, and get him you know, squared away a little bit. And I thought it would be, I thought my expertise would be relevant. And I kind of learned it wasn't. He didn't have PTSD. That's the go-to diagnosis of, of the VA now. And it has become conflated with a lot of different things, um, including TBI. He did have TBI. He also had low testosterone. Uh, he wasn't sleeping, chronic pain, all the things that, that Rick, Rick mentioned. And it took me a while just of kind of talking with him and trial and error, figuring things out. And then one day it was like, hey, let's get a blood test. Let's look at your testosterone. Holy crap, let's get a sleep study. Let's, you shouldn't have sleep apnea, but my goodness, you do. And you know, so it it's treat somebody for PTSD. If they have it, that may help them improve their life. But if they need endocrine therapy, apnea therapy, pain management, TBI um, treatment, PTSD treatment isn't going to help them very much. Um, so I think we've had a misalignment of what we've trying to what we've been trying to do and offering the community and how we've even conceptualized what they need. Talking about all the things you're talking about, there's no simple way to go about checking those routinely. Like there, there's just not a system for, there isn't. for the veteran population that don't right. have access to right. assets. Yeah. Right. There isn't. And you, you asked about the story behind our paper. So I should, let me just offer a few little bit of explanation on that. So the initial draft of our paper was a just something that I started writing up, and it became like a kind of a live document that every time I learned something new or had a new thought, I kind of started putting into it. But I was using it as an educational tool for the for the for the guys and the, and the spouses that I was talking with, and so it became something I would share with them and then use to discuss with them. And a lot of them said, "Man, it would sure be nice if something like this was out there for the rest of the world to see." So, so we took it and very much, you know, it was a, a naturalistic, almost ethnographic type of type of approach, but we, we put it into the form that it is in now. And so it's, it's been published in a peer-reviewed medical journal, but they're really written for the community. I didn't write that for the scientists. We, we didn't really envision the scientists and the me medical professionals would really resonate with it, but we thought it would resonate with the community. It is certainly resonated with the community. Yeah. And not to pivot from the paper, but Preston, your work and, and your residue paper in particular kind of came about the same kind of way, right? Um, you, uh, almost for 15 years now, right, have been working with um, SOF and also tactical law enforcement, other agencies uh, like NASA, um, like uh, emergency room personnel, um, first responders. Um, so you, you see... Uh, high performance um, in a lot of different areas, but I would say you have a you have a deep uh, a breadth of uh, experience uh, with soft globally. Yeah, uh, thanks very much for having me. And um, much like Chris, um, my circumstances was sort of accidental. Um, Rick said that as well. Sort of these things have by accident. My research is on trying to understand how people learn to navigate uncertainty, right? And so the easiest teams to study is trauma teams, soft, special operations, fire. You go to their schoolhouses and you watch them do their job. 
the people that are hosting me, right? And I've, I'm one of the few people that have seen the parts of the selection and training for all the five eyes. So UK, Australia, New Zealand, and US and Canada. And I've been in a lot of trauma rooms and a lot of fire departments and NASA mission control. And over while I was doing my research, I kept having this reoccurring conversation that started to make me um, pretty dispirited. And it was this idea that if you're going to be at the most elite level, there's an expectation that you're going to have to trade your soul and your liver and your back and your knees and your spouse and your relationship with your kids if you want to be top tier. And as an American watching great Americans, and I'm like, that's the most bullshit assumption I've ever heard in my life, right? Like, who came up with that? And why are we reinforcing it? Like, someone go shoot John Wayne in the head and let's move the fuck on, right? Because I, I'm tired of going to memorial services like we all are. And so I went back and started looking at the research, much like Chris did. And what I did was, though, I decided to look at it a very different way. This, but what I'm about to say isn't contrary to what Chris is saying. It's it's in addition and it's amplifying and it's collaborative. And, and people don't understand that part. If you have a broken arm, you need to go to a doctor. But if you're a mom, right, you're a mom and you know that not every time your kid gets a sneeze, you go to the doctor. You got to diagnose first, right? Yeah. The problem is with operators, they treat everything like what Chris said, like PTSD, when some of it isn't. Some of it is we just don't know how to make meaning of the experiences that we've had. And so they end up bottling up, which is what we call residue. And there's more to it. And you can read the paper. But the bottom line is what we decided to do is instead of going down what's called a pathological model, starting with the premise, you're broken, we got to fix you. Mm -hmm. We start off with an almost an anthropological model, which is saying to Rick's point, look, you've joined a tribe that's in charge of doing hard things. And you got to take responsibility and own the hard things, you personally. And that means if you have extreme good experience or an extreme bad experience, you got to figure out how to manage that and make meaning of it. And that's where the residue paper came about. And what I think is really interesting is right now, people will say to me, well, Preston, I think I'm pretty good at that. And I'm like, really? Let me ask you a question. If I asked you to turn to someone you know and care for and spend a minute telling them why they're awesome, could you do it? And if they told you for a minute that you were awesome, could you take that or would you dismiss it? And I was like, then shut up, right? Because I know you can't actually, I know even saying that makes you your palm sweat right now. It means that emotionally you can't tolerate the idea that you might be good. And what's been happening, and this is where I'll close, where I'm most frustrated with is the closing of Afghanistan. And this is going to sound like a political statement, and you need to understand it's not. You really need to hear what I'm saying right now, because I actually sort of don't care. And that's a terrible thing to say, but I don't. What the close of Afghanistan has done is it's validated and amplified existing anger. That anger is there for a lot of reasons. And now it's given people a sort of a righteous indignation. Here's the one thing I know. Anger will fucking kill you. It will kill you 100% of the time over time. It's worse than cancer. I'm not asking you, I'm not telling you I agree or disagree with anything you're saying about your situation or your view in the world. What I'm saying is that if you sit in a puddle of anger, it will, it will eat you like toxic cancer. So you better figure that out. So that's where I get passionate. And so I'm a little bit contrary only because I'm I'm like, I'm not going to nod and smile and pat you on the head and be like, man, yeah, you're a, you're a great American and you're righteous in your anger. No, you're not righteous in your anger. It's killing your kids and your family. Stop doing it. I'll stop there. Yeah, you're 100% right on that. And, you know, you guys, you've all brought up stuff. You've brought up the um, 
the fact that there is a physiological piece, there is an actual health piece. Um, and then there, there is making meaning of the service and what you're going through and, um, and what it means to be the best um, in the military, the most elite forces around the world. Um, and your residue paper, though, it gets on some of the things that, that, uh, that Chris talks about and Rick talks about, which is there's so much we can do that help us make meaning of experience and, and also give us a, a sure footing so that we, we have the capacity to make meaning of those experiences. Um, simple things like breathing exercises, um, like you talked about anger, but in your paper, you go into the, to the, um, there's an actual impact of seeing people smile. Yeah. Like yep. there, yeah. Go ahead. I mean, we, like there's, as Rick, Rick referenced a couple of things that are super important. I want to amplify all of these people. And this is the thing that most people don't understand. If you've entered the teams, that means you didn't leave your high school because you fit in. You left because you didn't fit in and you went in search of a group that you did fit in. So when you go home, you're not going home to normal. You're leaving normal to go back to where you didn't belong. And everyone's telling you that you should belong and you don't. And it's super frustrating. And the problem is, and this goes back to what Rick was saying, and I've actually just sort of dialed it down to this idea of the third space or the third thing. If your only identity is with your was with work or with your family, what I've seen, and this is sort of what Rick got after, is that if you lose one, you're high risk of losing the other. And if you lose both, probably not on the planet much longer because all the things that kept you moving along are not there anymore. And so you actually have to take the energy to create a third thing. And the best operators do. They belong to rock bands or rugby leagues or ballroom dancing. It actually doesn't matter. Point is, you go and all they care about is that you're a good third baseman. And that's all the, that's all the talk's going to be about, right? And then when you leave, you don't leave everything because you have another community and identity. And so it's the, the solutions, and I don't mean to oversimplify here, this is hard, hard work, but the work is not like hidden from you. It's not a, no one's keeping a secret, right? Any more yeah. than if you look at me, you're like, hey, Preston, eat less exercise and do some yoga. Roger that. And that's <laughs> just like, you just got to freaking do it, right? Yeah. I love what Preston is, is, is saying. And if I could just maybe riff off the concept of anger a little bit, I was thinking, you know, thinking about this more and more because I'm hearing so much anger um, since, since the, since the pullout, the debacle in Afghanistan, my, my phone has been lighting up um, both with people I know um, reaching out as well as, as sending their friends my way who are in really dark places. And so there is just an enormous amount of anger right now and and it's palpable and I, I hear it I see it I feel it um, I feel some I feel much of it myself at times I think the anger though uh, as destructive as it is for the for an individual and I agree it's it's a it's a fucking toxic stew to be living in but I think the flip side of anger right now for many is demoralization and so moving away from the anger um, I think for many people, it's easier to easier and safer to be angry than it is to be completely demoralized. And so I think not, and it's not even necessarily about finding the balance. As, uh, uh, as Preston said, it's about finding a third way and, and finding a, a different way. Time for a quick break to highlight our patron partner, EY. 
EY solves complex challenges for federal, state, and local governments and educational institutions. Through the enablement of technology and the use of data, they help government agencies with transformation and modernization initiatives to better serve the public. They have a proud record of assisting government and public sector agencies meet their challenges head-on and work closely to build a country that works better for the people. Learn more about them at ey.com. I, I am so glad I met you guys because the, uh, you know, for years, everybody's been wondering, what the fuck is wrong with me? About two months ago, we're driving up to Fort Benning. I got, uh, I got a couple active duty guys in their 30s, right? I'm the oldest guy at 63. And uh, there's seven of us in a van and we're driving along and, and, and the conversation goes, hey, man, how are you guys doing? And one guy said, man, I just I just took this um, this fight or flight test. And uh, we're all we everybody, every man in there started laughing because everybody's failed that. And uh, we're like, oh, did you pass it? And he goes, no. He says, I thought I did, man. I was in my zone. He said, I was, well, I was doing my breathing exercises. And they said, man, you were like high yellow or, or freaking burn orange. And, uh, <laughs> and the whole time. So we're all laughing. And then so we asked the one kid, hey, how's your neck? And he goes, oh, man, I just got the operation. He said, but, you know, the doc got me on these, uh, these uh, human growth hormones and, uh, and testosterone injections. I'm like, I'm doing that. The guy in the back. I'm, so every guy in there thought he was the only guy doing that. Yep. Everybody was on a CPAP. Everybody was having pain management issues. And, yep. the, and, it, and, it, and it spread from the current yep. active beauty guys all the way to, to my generation, you know, some uh, 15, 20 years removed. Crazy. Yep. There's yep, a, I hear that all the time. There's a really interesting study um, that was done uh, by a guy named Dr. Brent Bell at Harvard. And um, they were having this problem because they were having a lot of attrition for first year students at the Ivy League schools. And when they did the research, they found out that the, all of the reasons that oh, worldwide kids drop out of a first semester of college is for the same four reasons. It's, I don't know if I'll have good grades. I don't know if anyone will like me. Sex. And drugs, alcohol, and partying, right? Like, that's it. Like, those are all the reasons. And so they did this exercise called Fear in a Hat, where they got the kids together on the first day, and they put them in a circle, and everybody wrote down their, their like, really private, terrified concern, of which they are obviously the only one, right? And they put it in the hat, and they passed it around, and everyone read out the concern. It was, it was you know, agnostic. And then the, the group solved it. Well, by the sixth one, it just kept repeating, and every student started laughing, and it was like, Oh, we all, this is just, this is what it is. Like, this is what we all feel there. Everyone's like, Oh, okay. And once they normalized and like demystified it, it like changed the stat, the statistics. Uh, you know, I, I just came back from seventh group. Um, I drove up to the, uh, the panhandle a uh, couple of days. And uh, so I, I was talking to him about you know, a lot of this, this stuff, the, the whole transition piece and starting early and uh, you know, making sure that you shore up your faith, family, fitness, friends, finances, you know, all, all this stuff. But, and you're right, there was a lot of anger there. And, uh, and, and the, the, the one good thing about being old is that uh, I'm seeing this for the second time. I mean, when I, uh, I, I said, gentlemen, you, you and, and ladies, there, there were some, uh, some of the gals were in the room too. I said, you're, we're in 1974 all over again. I said, because I said, the problem is nobody, nobody uh, studies history anymore. Nobody, nobody learns from history. I said, Nixon ran on getting us out of Vietnam. And uh, so we asked the North Vietnamese, hey, we need to go to Paris and uh, to come to the peace table. And they're like, no, we're not doing it. So he went old school Curtis LeMay and he started B-52 runs on Hanoi and uh, in Haiphong Harbor and uh, down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. 
forced him to the uh, to, to the peace table in Paris. So 1973, they signed the Paris Peace Accords, and uh, the the North Vietnamese are going to leave South Vietnam. We said, hey, if you come back, we're going to bankroll bullet for bullet, tank for tank, gun for gun, and and oh, by the way, the buffs will come back. And uh, we even had a victory in Vietnam Day and some sometime in September, right? <laughs> and so Nixon leaves in disgrace. Uh, new Congress comes in in 74. They decide they're not going to bankroll our our commitment to the uh, to the Paris Peace Accords. And of course, what are the commies do? They roll. And, uh, and, and you know, we get the helicopters over the, the embassy in Saigon. So what I told the seventh group guys is we've seen this all before. The, uh, you know, they decided that they were not going to bankroll your sacrifice. And, uh, and so you got to get over it. You got to now straddle this next generation because it was the Vietnam guys that stood up the two Ranger battalions that turned into the Ranger regiment that, uh, and rebuilt five active duty special forces groups. So uh, those were the Vietnam guys. And, and that's this generation right now is they got to get the shoulders back, get their head up, get their eyes on the horizon and rebuild us and retool us. For the next fight that we, oh, by the way, never see coming, and uh, we we're not prepared for, and we always try to fight with the with the equipment and the tactics from the last war. So they're the guys that have to that have to have to do that, just like the Vietnam guys did. So I, I think that's it's not the key, but but that's uh, that's where they they need to get their head focused. I think you you hit the nail like perfect on the head. Like we're at this kind of pivotal point in history where um, the people who are looking around and trying to understand what happened they now are the ones in charge of the conversation for the future. They're yep. building the legacy for, for the future of SOF. There are different things at play because the Vietnam era, they weren't rapidly deployed for 20 straight years. So they're dealing with like a different, a different set of tools and demands on the force. And some of our original research when, um, the military special operations family collaborative kicked off. What we found, we we originally started by looking at the family and trying to understand why um, families coped with stress different than a lot of the conventional force. What we found when through interviews and and literature and and by kind of looking at some actually some some research out of the Israeli Defense Force is there were some there were some really basic things that touches on everything the three of you are saying. Um, when you look at the the physical health and um, and then the other things that aren't that aren't physical but they're important, the things we found that um, kind of started to show some of the strain and and the 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 problems, the physical health problems that would surface um, almost ten years before the service members were seeing them were really fundamental things. Like um, families were avoiding important conversations. They went on with um, unpredictable routines for years, um, and so much so that having zero predictability of routine was the norm. It, it was the way you operated your family. They stopped celebrating as families, so they uh, maybe didn't acknowledge wedding anniversaries or birthdays. Um, significant You're always gone. It's always gone. So it was like, you can't care because you're not going to be there to do anything. So let's just and, cut and, that and, out and right why, there. Why bring that up? Because though she'll be mad again. Exactly. <laughs> uh, skipped family vacations, um, working while on leave. 
Um, you have no family traditions. So like, it doesn't matter what you do at Christmas. We'll just do it different next year. Same thing with Thanksgiving, St. Patty's Day, same thing. Um, skipping family dinner, usually due to mealtime tension, sometimes due to unpredictability. Um, uh, pessimism about service and a limited awareness about invisible wounds. And all of these things are really foundational habits that we found can get people like a solid decade above um, the physical and the social and um, the performance challenges that we see. And, and I think it's really important um, just recognizing the basic humanity in your family and the people around you. And maybe you're not around to celebrate every birthday or anniversary, but you can come up with creative ways to acknowledge they happen um, that acknowledge people that if we can start some of those habits that get us ahead, the the future of the force, if those became normal conversations, simple things like what's in Preston's paper, smiling, um, some like mindful breathing, um, processing your service in a way that looks at the quality of your service and the value of your service um, like that and with your family and and with your friends like there's so much hope in that I that it makes me proud to be a soft family member and excited for the future of the community when I start thinking about things like that happening I I'm gonna if I could just say a word about Rick's recommendation about the book tribe I yeah. think Sebastian Younger has really written a valuable book, and I recommend that to every spouse, every service member I talk with, every veteran I talk with um, in the course of our conversations at some point, typically. I also assign it to my um, Psych 100 students who are mostly freshmen and, and sophomores, and they find it to be a very valuable book. So I don't think you have to be a come from a military uh, background at all to find that to be an incredibly meaningful book. I think it taps into some very universal aspects of what it is about our humanity that we that we need to stay in touch with. We, we've spent a lot of time talking about what the toll of service and soft currently is, kind of the the current emotions. What are some conversations you think need to be started and had throughout the community as we kind of reflect back on 20 years of the global war on terror? the Afghanistan pullout and what it means to have a strong, soft legacy moving forward. The, the, the one thing I loved about the Rangers was when, when you sign into the, it, then it was the Ranger indoctrination program. I think they've softened it uh, a little bit, but it, uh, you, you, you learn everything from uh, 1754, you know, Rogers Rangers all the way up to present. And uh, but you, you memorize the, the chain of command from uh, in your battalion from the time it was, from the time of inception all the way to, to present day. And obviously you realize that you're, you're part of something bigger than yourself, that you're part of an unbroken chain. And I noticed the same thing at seventh group yesterday when I was walking down the, uh, the halls. I mean, they, they have got uh, their, their lineage down as well. So I, I think being part of something bigger than yourself, and, and that, that's it really, the, the people that you meet, you know, the things that you've done. I mean, everybody's, everybody's proud of that. But then uh, what, what, what I also, also found too is that the uh, and I mean whether called divine or whatever, but uh, you know where, where God throws people in front of you, and uh, about the time that He's going to face plant you, the uh, about the time I was getting ready to getting ready to have my troubles with my wife, right? The uh, which is like I, in her defense, 
she just burned out and it was it was my fault and uh you know how long had you been serving at that point you had done a significant career at that point we were hitting like the 18 year mark you'd think we were like smoke them if you got them it's all over and uh she was like no i'm just you know because i was in iraq right and i got back and i called and uh, said hey baby and click so i figured it was a bad uh bad line right and uh so i called back and she clicked she hung up again and I emailed her and she said, I'm tired of being an army wife. And that's when I knew, man, I got a, I got a scat because uh, I had taken that whole family thing for granted for so long. Preston, do you have anything to add about things you think the force should be having a conversation about today and what you should do in these conversations? Um, this riffs a little bit different than what Rick said, but it's in line with it, which is know your legacy, but constantly question it. Soft was created because their parent organization encountered problems they couldn't navigate successfully. They needed somebody that could adapt and overcome. If you're so fixated on what you should be, if you're so certain on what the truth is, then you can't adapt to what's coming. And why do I as a citizen need you? Like, I don't mean to be that cruel about it, but like, that's literally what we need soft for. We need soft to, what if the zombie apocalypse is coming, we need them to be like, let me put down my coffee and get the boys. We'll go sort it out. I don't need a lecture on, we don't do zombies. Right. And so it's really important that they they remember that the the core principle of all of it is adapt to what we can't see yet. Rick, is that fair? No, that that is that is 100 percent fair because we've uh, we've raised almost an entire generation on counterterrorism. That's right. uh, But but if you go back to our original beginnings, it was all unconventional warfare. It was by through and with it was partner nation development. It was, uh, and, and again, I, we're, we're not going to fight. I mean, China's already said they're not going to fight us toe to toe. They're not going to fight us nuke to nuke. The, uh, you know, they're they're going to win without firing a shot. Uh, so it's going to be a regular warfare. In order to do unconventional and regular warfare, you got to do that through friends. And yeah. uh, so that means that uh, you know you don't get your gun on today. You go uh, you go work with your uh, with your all. You build an auxiliary. You build partner at H capacity, and you get your gun on with them if it if it if it comes to that. So. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. We we need to relook. I, I think revisit our roots, and uh, that's that's the future. And, and I mean, technology. I mean, my God, it's changing every day. So so how does that uh, how does that equate into the uh, the techno sphere and, and space? The, yep. And the one thing that I would I would suggest is that um, right now, as I travel around the world, I know that we're in the middle of an information war and that we're losing. True. No, you're absolutely right. Yep. Yeah. And so um, we better get better. We better get better at figuring out this difference between information or influence, or we're going to spend all our time being angry at things that don't exist. Mm-hmm. I also think we very easily can get angry at large institutions, bureaucracies, uh, governments that are that are by their nature never going to be perfect, never were intended to be perfect, never could be perfect. And so I think we can't let what we see a large organization or institution or government doing, we can't let that um, define us as individuals. And I, I saw a little bit of this with a small percentage of the Vietnam generation, Vietnam uh, veteran generation in the 90s when I was working at the VA. I mean, probably the most common theme that, that, that we heard you know, in some of those group discussions was anger and frustration that the government didn't... Um, didn't do better uh, during and after the war, um, and holding on to that wasn't, you know, that that wasn't good for anybody. You know, you know, Doc. When I went up to seventh group, I uh, I wore a, a set of M nineteen fifty one fatigues. It was the old uh, pickle suit, 
And uh, so I said, believe it or not, this was post-World War II. I mean, so we got through World War II. We had uh, pockets on the on the trousers. You had pockets on the chest, pockets here. The, the, the riggers actually showed, sewed pockets on the sleeves. So we went from that uniform to this one in 1951. And it was the longest running uniform we had from 51 to, I think, 84. And, uh, you know, full of, full of colors, full of starch. You know, the, uh, it was not the, the most functional uniform, but it looked good in garrison. And that's what the guys wore to Vietnam in 65. And it took them about 18 months to get into the jungle fatigues with, uh, with all the subdued patches. And I said, just, just realize that, to your point, that the, uh, the bureaucracy is going to make you do stupid shit when you're in peacetime. And uh, just know that, get over it, get beyond it, get it behind you, and uh, focus on what's coming. Know what you're about, but always question it. It seems so important now when things are changing and the world is moving a thousand miles a minute. Um, there's no more important time than now, I think, than to be able to pause and reflect and, and to to get our, our peers, whether they're spouses or service members, to do the same so that we're leading with clear minds and um, and navigating the future. So uh, I will just remind everybody, this event that we are hosting is November 9th from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, you will be able to register online ahead. Dr. Free and Dr. Klein will be moderating um, Lieutenant General Mike Nagata and Command Sergeant Major Bill Thetford will be the keynotes. And then there will be... Um, health and wellness sprints in between. Um, at the end, the Global Soft Foundation will be um, launching a soft health survey um, that we're hoping to get some solid feedback on real life health and wellness challenges facing the community. Um, so we're excited to see that and to get some, some good information about how um, SOF is doing and how we can do better as a community. Um, and so tune in to the Team Room Talk, um, November 9th from 7 to 9 p.m. SoftSpot is brought to you by the Global Soft Foundation, a 501c3 based in Tampa, Florida. If you liked what you heard, subscribe and give us a five-star review. If you're new to us, you can find out more about the foundation at gsoft.org. That's golfsierraoctoberfoxtrot.org.